Thanks for listening to the Movement Church Podcast. Movement is located in Newport, Kentucky, and you're always welcome to join us on a Sunday morning at 1030. Hope you enjoy this podcast. I encourage you uh, to do that. But welcome again. Um, you know, I, I'm so excited that you're here with us this morning. We're kind of in a, a fun series that I think is really important for us where we're talking about our mission statement. Uh, we're trying to answer some of these questions about why, why we're here and what we're trying to do. And last week we talked about our mission of helping people find and follow Jesus. That's what we do. But now we're trying to answer this question of where are we headed? Uh, what's our vision? Like what do we always do? Where are we, where are we going? And, and our vision statement is very simple. is that if we were to disappear, would we be missed? If we were to disappear as a church for whatever reason, would people notice now, usually we talk about this in terms of the community, the larger community, people who don't call Movement Church home. Is, are, are, we, are we giving a benefit? Are we bringing good news within our words and our actions and our, our generosity? Are we there in a way that, that people would say, man, this church really stepped up, really served, really was loving, really showed Jesus to the world, even though maybe they don't agree with us, even though they may uh, you know, be in a spot where they're against our faith or whatever it might be. Are we there adding value? But also, there's another part of this that maybe we don't always talk about. What about you? If we disappeared, would you miss us? People who call Movement Church home, people who come on a Sunday morning. And I was thinking about this, that the ways in which that, that we sometimes elevate church too much, where we put so much emphasis on the Sunday gathering that we think that is how you follow Jesus. And if you're not doing that, you're, you're, you're suddenly on your own and you're alone and you're not going to get anywhere. And, and while there's some truth there, I think we can also give so much pressure, so much authority, or not maybe not authority, so much credence to, to the church that this is the only way we can follow Jesus. That the church is somehow on par with God. And we put all this responsibility on the church, then we don't take responsibility for ourselves. If you're a, if you're a nerd, if you remember back to U.S. history class, maybe you remember a lecture or a lesson about the Civil War. This practice with the draft of substitutes. That somebody that was a, a person of wealth, a person of means, could, could pay the government or find someone and pay them to take their spot in the draft. And this, of course, was not unique to the Civil War, but it was maybe the most prevalent then. And, and what we see in this practice of substitutes is often how we associate ourselves in our spiritual growth and development, how we follow Jesus. We, we kind of contract out our faith to other people. And here's the deal. There's no substitutes in the kingdom of God. This is a very individual, but a very communal practice. This is something that we do together. And so for us as a church, I am not responsible for your faith, but I think I am responsible for helping you find and follow Jesus. And therefore, we are responsible for that. And so if we are going to be a church that would be missed, if we are going to get to a place where we are suddenly so vital and important, we have to be aware of this responsibility. The Apostle Paul writes this letter to one of those early churches that he helped start. One of these churches that is confused and trying to, to figure out how do we live this life. Like, I've said yes to Jesus, now what? And Paul kind of gives a mission statement, kind of gives an outline of what the church should be, what this community of people, of believers should do. 
In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13, Paul says this. He says, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Paul's kind of plan here, kind of strategic idea for the church, isn't that the church would somehow produce faith. His plan for the church was that the church would somehow help people, equip people to move closer to what God intended. That people would be moved by the story of Jesus, by this gospel story, through the Spirit, through the retelling of it, through the Scriptures, whatever it may be, but God ultimately would do that work, and then the church would come alongside and help flesh that out, help people answer that question of now what? They would build up this community of believers to unity, not around race, not around ethnicity, not around education, background, or privilege, but would build this up idea, this new community around the oneness and centrality of Jesus. And so what we see here is the church isn't responsible for making people believe. The church is responsible for helping people to follow. And so often when we pursue something this big, it can be frightening. It can be overwhelming, it can be scary, whether it be our doubts, whether it be the questions of how do I live, where do I go from here, how do I, how do I pursue this? When we think about our past, our mistakes, our sin, we say, well, I am somehow disqualified, I can never get to this place. We feel as though we are paralyzed. There's a goofy video I saw online that kind of helped illustrate this. It'll be on the screen here. This is from a, an amusement park in China. This guy is at height distance 100 story building and he's running across this and here at the end the safety cord suddenly it was never attached it comes loose and right there at the end he didn't know he thought he had this safety harness the whole time like can you imagine the lawsuits there can you imagine the fear imagine seeing that experiencing that and thinking i thought i was safe but i wasn't i, I think so often i think this is us when we're following Jesus. We're following Jesus, everything is fine, and then something happens, something tragic, something real, and we get to this place where we say, I don't know, I thought I had the safety net the whole time, but maybe I don't. And we pull back, and we retreat. But what I see in Scripture, and what I see in terms of the role of the church, is that we are supposed to provide or point to the net that does exist. See, I think that in following Jesus, there is a net. Now, this doesn't mean that you're going to be exempt from pain. This doesn't mean that life's going to go easier as you plan. But I do think there is a net that exists. The first thing that I want to look at is this idea of our doubts. I think there is a net for our doubts. What we see in Scripture, and I've talked about this before, is that Jesus doesn't condemn people who doubt. He condemns hypocrites. He condemns those who oppress he condemns those who think they are better, those who judge, but he doesn't condemn the doubters. We see, maybe most famously, with Thomas, one of the twelve. He was, he was a follower of Jesus. He was so rocked and wrecked by the crucifixion that when reports were coming in those few days after that Good Friday and after that Easter Sunday of Jesus being alive, he wouldn't believe it. His best friends, the people he trusted, were saying, this is what I saw. And he says, until I touch 
the scarred hands and feet and the hole in his side where they stabbed him with a spear, I'm not going to believe. And Jesus shows up and allows him to experience that. We read about this man, this desperate father who has a sick and dying child. And he comes up to Jesus and he says, teacher, my child is, is sick and hope is running out. And Jesus kind of turns it back and says, well, do you believe that I can heal him? And the man says, I do, but help my unbelief. Jesus doesn't condemn the man. How dare you have a faith that is shaky? He heals the boy. But there's another story that I, I, I kind of miss the way that doubt plays in. It has to do with John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. We read in Luke, the Gospel according to Luke, about how Elizabeth, who was John the Baptist's mother, was carrying him, was pregnant. And, and this was a miracle in and of itself. She was older in age. She had not had children up to this point. And it, we read that she is further along in the pregnancy, but then her younger cousin Mary, who is just now pregnant with Jesus, shows up at her home. Mary goes and stays with Elizabeth while she is pregnant. And in that moment, somehow, Elizabeth understands that Mary is carrying Jesus, the Messiah. We, we can then infer that, that Elizabeth, as she was raising her son John, who would become John the Baptist, this, this family that was incredibly observant, they would have told this story. There would have been this expectation of what's going on here. All the story about John the Baptist and the ways in which God blessed them to have this child and all the ways in which Mary brought Jesus into the world and all the promise there with him. We read later in life when they meet, when John the Baptist is out and kind of giving this message of repentance, of change, of, of improving what we're doing and changing our morality and turning back towards God and undergoing baptism, that when Jesus shows up, John is the first one to kind of declare, here comes the Lamb of God, this messianic title. When Jesus goes to John and says, you must baptize me, John balks at this because he says, I am not worthy to do this. It's clear that John the Baptist understands who Jesus is, yet there comes a point where John the Baptist, who should have such confidence about who Jesus is, asks some questions. In fact, he sends someone to ask Jesus if he is who he says he is. In Luke chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, it's beyond the screen. It says, At the very time Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So understand that the messengers, the people coming from John the Baptist said, Are you the one we're supposed to be waiting for? And it says, At that very time. So I can understand, I could read this as saying that right there, they come and ask this question, and then right there, Jesus is performing all these miracles. And so he turned to the messengers, Jesus did, and he says, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleaned, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account for me. Jesus is okay with our doubts. Even when our doubts don't make logical sense. It doesn't make any logical sense that John the Baptist would doubt. It doesn't even make sense that the man would say, I believe that you can heal my son, yet help my unbelief. Yet so many of us, we hold those same, that same tension. I have faith, but I have doubt. I believe, but I'm not sure. I'm in on this, but I've got questions. 
it appears, and I would say I am confident of this, that God can handle our questions and our doubts. When tragedy strikes, it is okay for us to ask God why, to cry out, to express our fullness of what we are disappointed with, what we are hurting about, because if God is who God says he is, then he knows already. But what God wants from us is that relationship, is that connection. And so when we see ourselves in this spot where we have doubts, I think there is a net there because we can approach God with our doubts. We can approach with, with boldness and confidence. We can show up, we can ask those deep and dark questions, those questions that maybe we wouldn't even share with our loved ones and wouldn't even be honest with ourselves. We can share those things with God. And what we see over and over again, and, and man, I wish this played out in an easier way or a way that was clear or systematic or uniform, but what we do see is that I think God responds to our doubts. I, I do think there is evidence. There is, there is opportunity here. We see John the Baptist's disciples saying, go report back what you're seeing, what you're hearing. I, I think we can trust the Bible. We can trust the Bible is reliable. I think we can trust many of our experiences and say, look how God has shown up in this place. I think we can look into the community and say, look how this has played out. And this person, they're not crazy. They are genuine. They believe maybe there's something to this. I think we can look to those sorts of things, but we can never get up to a place where we say, man, my doubts, I feel like everything's going to fall apart because I think there's a net there. I think there's a net there that we can come back to. We can rebound from. We can reach a point where we say, I don't know about this, 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 and this, but I know this. I believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. I, I believe this. I'm sticking with this. This is what I am putting my faith in. And when we wrestle with our doubts, it's not about reaching certainty. It's not about removing all questions, but it is about experiencing something more a faith, a trust. So much of the New Testament, we see people trying to wrestle with, and what we've talked about so far today in the scripture that was read this morning is wrestling with this idea of now what? And so I think there's a net that the Bible provides, that the early church provides, that Jesus through his spirit provides in terms of our practices, about what we are supposed to do. There, there's kind of this common logical kind of questioning, line of questioning that I've, I've experienced with people who are investigating faith. They'll say, particularly faith in Jesus, they'll say, okay, if, if Jesus has forgiven everything, why does it matter I do or don't do whatever? Why does it matter if I, if I sin, quote unquote? Why does it matter if I, if I do whatever it is that I want to do? If Jesus forgives everything, why don't I just ask for forgiveness and then I'm good and I can go about living my own life? This is not a new question. This is not an uncommon question. The, the Apostle Paul is writing to, writing to this, this church in Corinth, and, and Corinth in that day, the best modern equivalent might be Las Vegas. It's kind of this, this place that has a reputation. That you just kind of do whatever you want. You can indulge in anything you would want to. But he's writing to this group of Christians who are trying to figure out how to live and he kind of quotes back to them something there in verse 12 of chapter 6. He says, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. Paul kind of, kind of lays out this idea. Guess what? There's nothing you can do to get God to love you less. There's nothing you can do to get God to love you more. 
You cannot lose God's love. You cannot lose God's, uh, uh, you know, you know, bringing you in, uh, the adoption that he does, bringing us into the family, his, sa- his saving. I don't think you can lose that. I, I think what he's saying here is that God's love is total, it's complete, and it's available. And so nothing changes that. And so like Paul is saying, yes, you can do whatever you want, but is everything beneficial? Is everything good? Is it always going to lead you to that full life that Jesus talks about? So it's not from a standpoint of saying, you better not do X, Y, and Z, otherwise God is going to smite you. But it's saying, is this what is best? The grand sin of the Bible, the grand overarching sin of the Bible is idolatry. The, the biggest thing, the most common sin discussed in the Bible is idolatry. This idea that we put something in a place where only God should reside. We worship something. We put something that is usually a good thing in a place reserved for the one thing. And what we see over and over again is that people get kind of sideways on this, not with something that is totally, you know, debased, something that's totally awful and terrible, but something that kind of makes sense, something that is good. And we say, well, look at this, this good thing. What's wrong if I give so much affection and attention and worship to this? Because that's only where God resides. This idea of being mastered by something. This is what Paul is talking about, where we take only the place we put something in the place that only God can reside. So when it comes to our practices, I think there's a net here. I think there's kind of some guidelines here. There's an ability for us to move forward. When you're driving down the road and you're, you looked over and there's a, there's a big drop off there and there's guardrails there, right? Now, you don't want to hit the guardrails. You hit the guardrails, you're going to go to a body shop. But if the guardrails weren't there and you went over the cliff, you're going to the hospital. And so much in life, but we need some guardrails where, you know, you don't want to hit the guardrails, but it's a lot better than the alternative. So much in our life, we say, well, I can do whatever I want. Technically, I think you're right, but you're missing out on something that God is offering. This better life, this full life. And so it's about opportunity. It's not about guilt or shame. And the third thing I see is that we, I see that we have a net for our sins. Now, sin might be a word that carries with us some baggage for you, and that's understandable. I would define sin as this. Sin is any action or inaction that takes us away from God's intent, for God's best. Any action or inaction that takes us away from what God wants to give us. If God is a good father who wants to give us good gifts, then this outside of that is a sin. If God is a God who says through Jesus that he wants to give us life and life to the full, anything that takes away from that, anything that we do or don't do that takes away from that, is a sin. It's outside of that. And so therefore, that list becomes huge real quick. That list becomes huge real, real quick. Of course, so many of my sins that are so readily available happen when I'm behind the wheel. So I'm driving along last night, we run up to Indy for a birthday party, and I'm driving along, and there's somebody there on 471 is two-handed, two-handed texting away, right? Like they're texting away while driving, and they pass me on the left. I'm not a slow driver, but there they go. I end up getting behind them, and they kind of got the head tilt like this, and every once in a while they look up, and they're texting like the whole way, like they go over the bridge, they're going, they're like, oh, I could not believe it. I'm honking, I'm getting mad, and they just keep on going, right? Is that, is that what's best <laughs> for me to get so riled up about that? Of course not. But, but you could look at anything in our lives that we takes us away from these moments where we say, is this what's best? Is this what God has for me? When I raise my voice with my kids, when I tell the little white lie, 
when I say things that I know are going to hurt, when I overindulge, when I allow alcohol or substances of any kind, food and carbohydrates, whatever, to become that thing that masters me, then that's a sin. When I do anything in terms of, of my sexuality that is outside of the context of marriage with my wife, whether it be a thought or an action, that is a sin. So sin is this huge idea, this huge concept, this huge umbrella for anything that goes against what God wants. Now, does that mean that we're all in this spot where we're screwed and there's no hope and you might as well just do what you want? Oh, of course not. This means that we needed a total and complete saving. And so this net for our sins has to do with grace, has to do with this idea of grace. And, and Paul goes through this long list in Romans chapter 3, and I want to break it up as I read through most, most of it here, in verse, starting in verse 19. Paul says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. So you look at the Hebrew Bible, look at the Old Testament, you look at the first five books called the Torah, what you see are laws, what you see are rules, ways of living, guidelines to move forward, and you look at that, you look at the Ten Commandments, just ten of these hundreds of laws, and you will quickly find out how far off you are on God's standard. That's a universal thing. That's a universal thing, and Paul is laying that out very clearly. So this is the inevitable thing, that we live in this broken world. I believe that we live in a broken world, and I believe that our only hope is redemption. I believe that this happens both individually and as a people. I believe that we have to hold on to this reality in one hand, that we live in a broken world, and we hold on to the other idea that we are in this process of redemption. And it's so easy to get lazy, to get complacent, to get cynical here. But doing so, I think, cheapens the work of grace. In verse 21, he goes on, he says, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is the universal human condition of brokenness. And Jesus extends this righteousness to us, this righteousness, this perfect way, this way of God, this way of, that God intended things to go, that Jesus was not just this revolutionary leader, teacher, moral, whatever. Jesus was more than this. He was God on earth. And when we place our faith in Jesus, not by earning it, not by doing something, achieving something, something happens. Verse 24 and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because, of, because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. That's a complicated statement. Let me back it up a little bit. Paul says that all are justified freely by his grace. This is something, this justification, this being made right with God is, is given completely openly. There's no prerequisite. It's it said that it's given through faith, not by earning anything. 
He speaks of this sacrifice of atonement, this atonement, this being made right with God, this this ultimate sacrifice, that what happens is, is that God on earth comes, is perfect, is perfect. If you don't say he's divine, you would say he's incredibly upright, he's an incredible teacher, he is enlightened, he is somehow above what normal people normal man is able to do you would say these things and you would say what a tragedy it is that the greatest superpower in the world at that time would arrest him would torture him and execute him this grand injustice would occur how sad that is but in this moment i hope we understand we see that something more is going on here that because of that grand injustice the perfect justice this great reversal this great transference occurs what happens is that in this moment, that great oppressive force of the empire, that great oppressive force of religion that said you better behave and you better do right and you better follow all the rules of God wants to love you, that great force of fear of the unknown, of something different that people had when they saw Jesus, ultimately empowers him, ultimately allows the sacrifice to carry through. And the grand way that this is all wrapped up is in the resurrection. That in the resurrection we experience, we see, we are promised that power. And this doesn't happen. This doesn't happen because we have earned it. This doesn't happen because we have somehow reach some sort of level that we've achieved but what happens is this is freely offered it's freely offered and when we say yes when we have faith when we put trust in it things change for us things aren't made easier doubts aren't removed those tough decisions of life do we do this or do we do that don't just simply simply become easier But what does happen, what does happen is that we are now part of the family. We are now adopted in. We now have rights as a family member. We now can begin to embrace the life and life to the full. We can begin to embrace eternity now, not just when we die. And so what we see is that I think Jesus is offering us a net. That when we are faced with life, And we think about what it's going to take for us to move forward. We find ourselves in a place where we're not sure how we're going to go. We're not sure what to do, and and maybe we we pull back because of that. Like that crazy video, we think we have a net, but we really don't. Because when we think we have a net, we're able to move forward. We know that the worst that could happen won't happen. We think we have a net, and so therefore we have some confidence moving forward. But I don't think that video is comparable to what it means to follow Jesus, because I think there is a net. I think when we have doubts, I think we can voice those doubts. I think that answers and reasons are provided. I think when we think about what we're supposed to do and we're kind of paralyzed by indecision or we're, we're paralyzed or we're frustrated by is this right or is this right, I think that we can step back and, yeah, it's, it's tough to find exact how to do this and that in our day and age when we look at this ancient collection of books called the Bible. But I also believe the Bible is not just a product of its time and history and culture. I think it's a timeless document. I think it's something that God speaks through to this day. I know it's clear to me 
there are principles, there are things, there are truths that transcend all of that throughout its pages. I think when we think about our sins, we think about the ways in which we have fallen short, when we think about all the ways in which the we have screwed up, and if you don't realize the depth of your sin, you're not being honest with yourself. If you don't realize how screwed up you are, you are not being honest with yourself. And I think that when we do that, we can easily respond with shame. We can easily respond by pulling back, by making excuses. But what I see in Jesus, and what I see in the early church, when people are confronted with this truth, when people say, I am saying yes to this Jesus, I believe I'm in, and now what do I do? I don't see them becoming crippled with the weight of their obvious sin. I see them moving forward in grace and forgiveness. I see them operating with a net. That they are able to move forward, not because they are better than other people. I see them being able to move forward, not because they are assured that everything's going to work out. I think they realize that if they fall, it's ultimately going to be all right. And so when we talk about helping people find and follow Jesus, we do this in a couple different ways. We say, Here's what you got to do. We believe that you have to take a step and say yes to Jesus. You can define that and work that in a lot of different ways. But you have to come to this place where you say, you know what, I'm in. And then you need to continue to move forward and see where that goes. And as a community, we're here to help one another do just that. That's the kind of church we want to be. Let's pray. God, the depth of our sin is immense. The doubts and questions that we have.